My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, it's good to have you here. We are going to be in Acts 8 today. If you have a Bible or a device that you use, we're going to keep working through the book of Acts. That's where we've been as a church the last few months. Um, and today is an intriguing passage. I, I enjoy it a lot. I've been looking forward to preaching this passage. In fact, I'd say it's, it's chapters like chapter 8 that made me excited to even bring the book of Acts and move through it um, with you as a church family just because it does speak considerably to the heart of a missionary. Remember, the book of Acts is not a history of the church. It's a history of the church's mission, right? And so some passages will speak directly to the heart of an evangelist or it will show us what evangelism looks like or what mission looks like. And this is going to be one of those passages. So we're just going to read through it to start off. This is in Acts 8. We're going to be in verse 26. Acts 8, 26. This is the word of the Lord for us. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does this prophecy say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, let's pause it right there. And let me say something that most of you know, especially if you're a partner at Legacy Church. Legacy is a spirit-filled church. Okay, meaning we believe in the active role of the Holy Spirit, who is, by the way, just as much fully God as Jesus is fully God and the Father himself is fully God. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God is highly active and invested in his people among the globe all across the land for his glory and for our good. We do believe this. But just in saying something very brief and broad, I know that puts us in a big bucket of churches. Lots of churches say that. In fact, you put a thousand churches in the same room that say that they're spirit-filled, they're going to walk that out in a thousand different ways. Some will see the Holy Spirit's activity kind of constrained to just the salvation of man and maybe illuminating the Scripture, teaching us what the Bible says. 
Some will see spirit-filled and a little bit more of a charismatic leaning where they'll stand up and they'll maybe say dreams and visions from the microphone on a Sunday morning. I've been in part and I've led in churches on both ends of the spectrum. I came from a spirit-filled church, which is widely charismatic. And by the way, that's not a slam. I learned more good things than I did bad by far, by far as did my wife and others in this room. And I think I could speak for many of them by saying that our theology has shifted over the years, not just in how we look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit operates through gifts. It's not just that, but our theology has also shifted considerably in how we see salvation, how the sovereignty of God kind of intersects with our choices and our decisions. I mean, I say the least, my bookshelf is noticeably different than what it was 15 years ago. But speaking for myself and not others, I have to say that as I have gotten less laser-focused or maybe less consumed over the supernatural expressions of God, I also find myself far less sensitive to what the Spirit of God is doing in the very moment. I don't know how it happened. It just did. What was natural to me 15 years ago is now kind of an exercise. Take some work. Back then, my theology might have had some points of dysfunction here or there, but at least I had my head on a swivel when I walked into a room. I could walk into a restaurant or a laundromat or the gym or wherever and just have this feeling of, all right, God, here I am. What are we doing today? Who's in this room today? Give me one person. I would love to see an opportunity. Show me a door. Send me. I'm your guy. I'm ready. Let's do this. You know, one of the challenges that my pastor back then, when I was on staff at a church in Tampa Bay, he was my mentor. He put a challenge between me and my other associate pastor that we worked with. It was a small church. And it was a one-month challenge where every day we were challenged, and he did it too. All three of us did this. Every single day we had to walk up to no less than two complete strangers, it couldn't be someone that you knew, a complete stranger, and start a conversation with the intentions of sharing Christ and praying for them in the moment for something that they needed in the moment, right? Sounds easy, doesn't it? Not that hard. It was was brutal to walk up to people you don't know every single day. And I'm an introvert. I would get get ready to come home after a long, hard day at work, and I would be driving home, and I'd think, oh, I forgot. I forgot. I haven't talked to anybody today. I haven't walked up to any complete strangers. And so I would just go to Kroger and I would creep around for 30 minutes and look for people that wouldn't swing on me or people that looked like they would be agreeable and wouldn't be an issue. And I would walk up and it was the same company line for a solid month. I would always start off with, hey, I'm not a weirdo. Okay. Hey, I'm not a weirdo. My name is Luke. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to come and ask you a question. I just felt like I I needed to come up and ask you if there's anything I could be praying for. Because I would walk into a place like this or a laundromat or a restaurant and I would say, all right, Lord, show me somebody. Show me somebody. I don't even know what that means. Maybe somebody stands out. Maybe I hear overhear a conversation. Maybe there's a moment where I can insert myself in such a way that I can maybe proclaim and, and, and declare who Jesus is. And then maybe end with a statement that sounds like or rhymes with, is there anything I could be praying for for you right now? Right? Listen, I hated this challenge, and I loved it at the same time. Because, yeah, I got middle fingers, and I got weird looks, but I had some incredible moments, too, full of tears and thanks and hugs. 
what it required, a challenge like that for me, was a rewiring of my expectations for what an average place really was. It, it just, it did. It, it rewired me in, a, in such a way that I, I had to be a little bit more open to God's leadership and this quiet voice that I hadn't really practiced listening to all that much. Here's my big question as we move through this passage today. If the Spirit of God leads you into a risky moment with somebody, would you even hear him? Would you know what that sounds like? Could you recognize a voice like that? And maybe the second big question is, would you follow him if you could? Would you say, send me? You see, last week when we were in Acts 8, we saw that Philip took and carried the gospel to a place called Samaria, a place where it really, to be honest, should have never gotten traction to begin with. And he did so in some very not ideal circumstances, and it just didn't make much sense. But yet God moved through these unideal circumstances with imperfect people and did some very beautiful things. And now we see what many consider to be the Samaritan Pentecost. Something like what had happened in Acts 1 and Acts 2 now is happening with people that were considered outsiders. So it's this really cool thing that we saw last week. This week what we see is God supernaturally leading and guiding an obedient Philip to evangelize a searching Ethiopian official. It's an interesting passage. You know what's most interesting is that this eunuch, and by the way, a eunuch, if you're not aware of what a eunuch is, it's just a guy that can't reproduce. It could be for various different reasons. He's a guy that's never going to have kids. This eunuch travels over 500 miles to go visit a temple he's not allowed to walk into. Eunuchs weren't allowed via Deuteronomy 23. They were not allowed to go into the assembly. They were not allowed to go into the temple, much like lepers, because it was a symbolic form of impurity, and only perfect things could come close to God. Only perfect people could come close to God. It's, it, it's, it sounds like a jerk rule, really, right? That only perfect people and only perfect things can come that close to God. But what it's doing is it's setting the stage for the gospel where a perfect Christ who is God will come close to us and grant us access. He gives us the purity we could not achieve and takes the impurity off of our shoulders. That's why that's in Deuteronomy 23. That's the beautiful part about a passage like that. And what we saw last week is that the Samaritans who were excluded are now included. Pretty cool. And now a eunuch who was excluded is now included. The gospel net is growing outward. That's what we're seeing. It's finally getting to the far edges of the earth. And this is just as Jesus would prophesy and predict in Acts 1 where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The gospel is marching to the ends of the earth to include the excluded Lepers, villains, and eunuchs. Let me just tell you, just to get off the beaten path for a moment, this doesn't have anything to do with the main idea of the passage, but there is, this is a powerful tool in evangelism because everyone you talk to feels excluded. Everybody. You walk into any public place today and walk up to a stranger and you won't know their favorite color, their favorite show on Netflix, their personal baggage, if they're married, their middle name, you won't know a lot. I could promise you, you will know one thing. For certain, they feel excluded. People just don't feel like they belong. They don't feel included. And the beauty of the gospel is it is an intoxicating message where Jesus finds misfits and calls them family 
regardless of their history and their baggage. And it's just music to so many years. But to get back to this passage, just so you know that there are a lot of nerd fights over whether or not this Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile or a foreign Jew, okay? So they're, they're saying that this guy was a Gentile, and then some say, no, he couldn't have been a Gentile because Cornelius, who we haven't even gotten to yet, is widely considered to be the first Gentile convert, right? So which is he? Here's the answer. doesn't really matter, okay? You could believe whatever you believe on that, and it won't really matter. This is what we do know for a fact, is that he was Ethiopia's version of the Secretary of the Treasury, right? He had a lot of influence and a lot of weight, but no ability to leave a family legacy. But here's what's interesting about his inability to have progeny that would have kids that would have kids, his inability to produce a legacy. From what we can tell, this was Africa's first convert, this Ethiopian eunuch. Interesting. In fact, John, the Apostle John, had a disciple whose name was Polycarp, and Polycarp had a disciple whose name was Irenaeus. So this guy, Irenaeus, who was just one degree of connection away from John himself, wrote about this guy. And he said that it is this exact eunuch that would go into North Africa and be a missionary that would start new and beautiful works. Now, we don't know how wide-reaching those works were. We don't know how deep that went. That, that we do not know for sure. One thing we do know, though, Africa now holds 690 million Christians, which is enough to fill our nation two times over, more than any other continent by far. Now, certainly a lot of that was going to be imported from other nations. Mark, who you know from your Bible, was also legendarily sent to Africa, and he himself also did missions work. I don't know how effective this eunuch was. Certainly he was a part of this. All to say this is a weighty conversation we're watching happen in the back half of Acts 8. It's a weighty conversation, even if no one in the moment could see it, which is how it goes for weighty conversations, by the way. Right? You never know. You never really get to see what happens afterward when you walk up and you take a risk and you tell somebody something. You might get shut down. They might just smile and be polite with you. You really never know where that's going to go. Philip wouldn't live long enough to see African churches planting more African churches, planting more African churches, which, by the way, are sending tons of churches to the Middle East, probably more than America is right now. Philip wouldn't live long enough to know that in 2022, Knoxville, Tennessee, would have two, two African churches here serving the Burundian and the Congolese refugee families. Two. I mean, consider this. There are disciples. There are African disciples in Knoxville making disciples right now that came from some lineage of some kind of church lineage, from a church that planted a church, that might reach all the way back, might, to the singular conversation. It's fascinating to me. You never know where your submitted moments of courage end up. You have no idea. No idea. But somehow this official got his hands on a parchment of some kind with either some of Isaiah or all of Isaiah. And that's what he's reading is a piece of Isaiah 53. And he's reading it out loud. At the exact same time that Philip happened to be there. Big question. Why was he there? Why is Philip even at this place? And this is what's interesting is right in the middle of the Samaritan Pentecost, God pulls him out. He's, he was kind of the spark plug for the whole thing, if you remember from last week, right? So everything's starting to kind of pick up speed, and then God grabs him and tells him to go somewhere else. Doesn't sound very wise to me, 
Doesn't sound strategic at all. You'd think he'd want to keep Philip there to maybe groom the leadership, maybe kind of nurture the growth, broker this merger between the Jewish church and the Samaritan church. It seems like that's where Philip needs to be. But Philip heard the Lord clearly enough, at first through an angel of the Lord and then later through the Spirit of God, and he was told to head south. Many scholars say around 60 miles away where he'd bump into this guy who honestly couldn't be more different from him. Just imagine this for a moment. You, let's say it's you, and you're in the fat middle of leading or being a part of a city awakening in Knoxville, Tennessee. Not thousands of people getting radically born again, thousands of families getting radically born again. And it's amazing. And it's all you can think about. And you can't believe you're a part of it, right? Just you, just average you. Just getting overwhelmed with joy over what you're seeing God do in your midst with your neighbors, the people you work with. I want you to imagine how it is all beautiful and it's all you can think about, you dream about, and right when it's starting to get going, God says leave. He tells you to start heading towards Asheville. That's it, just go. Doesn't tell you how long, doesn't tell you where to stop, why you're going. Kind of like Abraham, he just says go, right? Would you? Would you go? Would you leave? I mean, it would have to be an obvious leading from God, right? Because it just doesn't make any sense. Let's imagine you make it around 60 miles away, which I did the math. I looked at the map for you. It's the bright metropolis of Hartford, Tennessee. Population 750. I'm sure you've all been there. Imagine you get to Hartford and God says, hey, see that guy at the Waggles waiting for his Tesla to charge? He's listening to a podcast. I want you to just kind of run up and creep on him. Over, just eavesdrop a little bit, and then ask him a couple questions. I mean, does that just sound strange to you? It sounds pretty strange to me. It doesn't really make much sense. In fact, you don't even know, if you, if, if you don't know what the Lord's leading looks like, and you've never sensed the Lord leading you in a direction, or have been obedient to submit your will to what he's doing in the moment, then you might just chalk that up to needing more sleep. Listen, this is not inconsistent with how God leads us sometimes. It's not God will never guide us against the flow of his word, but he will often guide us against the flow of our own logic and our preferences. He'll guide us into moments that will be hard to explain, yet could very well extend well beyond our lifespan, into eternity even. And what I love about this passage is that Philip is moving against this normal flow with nothing more than just the subtle voice and the leading of the Lord, right? He's just an average guy. We looked at this last week. He doesn't have a cape on, no pixie dust or magical powers. He doesn't even have a seminary degree. He was just a guy. He was a wise man that depended on the Holy Spirit. That's why they chose him with five other guys a few chapters back, right? He was dependent on the Holy Spirit, and here we get to see the Holy Spirit moving him inconveniently into a place of discomfort. This is interesting about verse 26 where it says, this is a desert place. That's what the angel of the Lord says. This is a desert place. In the old world, in the ancient world, there would be things attached, meaning attached to certain spaces. And you probably knew this um, to some degree about like the ocean or the sea or the swirling torrent or the deep waters. That was a place of chaos, always. When you see it in the Bible, that's a place of chaos, disturbance, death, burial, sea monsters. That's what you're supposed to feel whenever you see it used poetically. The desert's really not that much different. It's a place of testing, trial, 
loneliness, emptiness, struggle, discomfort, lack of abundance, that's where he's pushing him. So, so Philip is being relocated from this place of bright energy and feeling like he belongs, feeling like he's contributing all the way to this place where he is in the desert. He was a rock star in Samaria, getting it done, and now he's going to an uncomfortable place to be awkward. That's what he's doing. And God does do that. He leads us against the grain into moments that have great eternal effect, even if we don't see the results. And he leads us into the moments where we have this freedom to preach a gospel, to demonstrate a gospel to the excluded, to show them how Jesus includes. If we have a listening pair of eyes and a trusting heart, we will see moments that outlive us. I mean, send me, Lord, that is one of the easiest and the most dangerous prayers you can pray, and God hears it, and he honors it. Send me, Lord. And I think this is why it confronts us so much, this openness to just be led like that. It's because I, and maybe it's just me, I don't think we're very interested in God's Spirit interrupting our lives. We don't want to see this intrusion a small voice intruding and leading us away from what we want to do. We prefer our own will rather than being led by somebody else's will. And listen, the reason that's a struggle for you is because it was a struggle for your father, Adam, in the garden. Whenever he said very differently from Christ, not your wills but mine, my will over your will, I got this leadership thing. I could lead myself. And ever since that moment, it's in all of us to not want to be led. Toddlers don't want to be led by somebody else. Men do not want to be led by somebody else. Wives, women don't want to be led by somebody else. Listen, pastors don't want to be led. Leaders are the hardest to lead. People don't want to be led. And I know it, it, this might provoke a, a little bit of a retort, but Luke, I'm fine with being led. I'm fine following. You're fine, you're fine following someone's leadership when they're taking you in a place you want to go. But here's the, that's not leadership, that's management, right? Leadership is when you're being carried to a place you don't want to go, where there is a submission of your will to somebody else's will. That's very different. And the reluctance for us to be led beyond our will, that's not a horizontal problem first, that's a vertical problem first. We struggle following the leadership of others and being led. We struggle with that with each other because we struggle with the Lord first. It's vertical first. Listen, it is risky. I'm going to tell you right now, it is risky to pray, here I am, Lord. Surprise me. Do as you see fit. I'm your vessel. I'm your hands. I'm your feet. I'm your voice. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm looking for somebody. Looking for a misfit. Looking for a eunuch. Looking for someone. Looking for anyone. That's a dangerous prayer. And it's dangerous because we simply don't know how badly God is going to disrupt our day. <laughs> We don't know how wildly he's going to alter our life. So we keep our heads down and walk on the same cow paths that we've burned in the ground because of our preferences over a long amount of time. Right? And, and, and I want to feel like I'm open to the Lord's intrusive interruptions in my life, but would prefer he interrupt me when I want to be interrupted. Does that make sense? I want to be interrupted when it's convenient to be interrupted, which I know it's not an interruption anymore. Lord, I'm all yours. I'm here for about six minutes, and then I got to get on because I got an agenda. I got things to do, right? I am here for everyone. Show me somebody, Lord, except for that person and that person, right? I'm all yours as long as I can be all my own too. 
No deserts, no inconvenience, no risky moments, no cringy, weird awkwardness. Gosh, man, following is hard. Being led is hard. Following is hard when things are plainly stated in black and white, in English, in a translation that we all understand and can read very plainly. It is hard to it's hard to be led by this. Much more the quiet voice that comes with the subtle guidance of God's Spirit and the noise of a loud day. And it's in those moments when you're walking through a supermarket, sitting at a restaurant, walking down the street, whatever. It's in those moments where you'll hear this subtle draw to minister to somebody, pastor somebody, evangelize, whatever, and you will think to yourself, maybe that's not God. God. Maybe God didn't say that. Maybe that's just me. After all, I've got things to do, and that's going to be awkward. That's just going to be awkward if I step into that. My question is, how did Philip know how to do this? He hasn't been a Christian for very long. No one's been a Christian for very long. Like a year? How did he learn how to do this? How did he get this? Who taught him to be so sensitive to the, to, to the Lord's leadership, and who taught him how to be so submissive with his own will? What if he saw it in his friend Stephen, who, by the way, at this point in history, he's in the ground because of how he submitted his will. What if, what if he saw it in his hero Jesus, who was led like a lamb to be sheared in order to cover us? I mean, that's, that's the picture that we get, a lamb being sheared where the wool is pulled off to cover our nakedness, to cover our brokenness and our shame, right? What if he learned it that way? I mean, that's, what, that's what's interesting about this passage that the eunuch is reading. He's reading a piece of Scripture that is over 700 years old, closer to 750 years old. Yet it was talking about Christ. Back in Isaiah 53, like a sheep who is led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Lambs don't lead. They're led. That's how that animal works. Right? Now, this is what's interesting. Jonathan Edwards Back in the 1700s, he was a philosopher, a theologian. He was also a preacher. He would talk about how Jesus was both a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb. And just he, he called it the conjunction of excellence of Christ and how beautiful it was that he could do both at the same time. He'd be led and he would lead. He would submit and he would dominate. Those are the dual postures of Christ. And that's good for us to know because when he is Walking towards the cross, he's not being helplessly led to the cross. Like he can't stop everybody. He, he's submitting his lion-like power, and he embraces the mechanism for cosmic renewal and the cross for the glory of the Father and for the good of his family. And as it goes on to say, his life was taken from the earth. But his life was taken from the earth to include the excluded and the eunuchs, and the Samaritans, and the villains, and the prostitutes, and the religious. God is so good to us. I mean, we are included. No longer excluded. And this, this means you are free. Friends, listen. You are free from a life of timid adventures and tiny dreams. You're free. Your deepest satisfaction will be found when God is glorified in you, even to the ends of the earth and to the ends of this city. So you're free to pray, I'm here. I'm yours. I'm available. I'm ready. It is the riskiest of prayers, but 
It's the boldest of adventures. It's the deepest of meanings. It's the depth of joy. All found in a heart that is open to the leadership, even the subtle, even the subtle leadership of God. You are free to invite the interruptions of the Holy Spirit in your life because there's so much satisfaction and adventure to be found. But this requires a few things from us. If we're going to walk in the light of the gospel like that, it requires one thing for sure, and that's that we believe that God still leads like this today, that he even still does this. I think it's normal for us to see um, the phrase sensing the Lord is a little gooey and subjective, okay? I'm definitely with you. I can get uncomfortable with these words because if God is speaking to you or nudging you or leading you or directing you, I can't verify that, right? And we've all seen it abused. We've all seen that. People come up and say, I feel led by God to leave my husband. I've heard that. I've been in living rooms where I've had to pastor right through the middle of that. I've, listen, Luke, I don't know. I'm just telling you, I feel like the Lord's leading me to divorce my husband. I feel like the Lord is leading me to leave the church. Anytime someone starts a sentence with, I feel led, there's just something in me that goes, uh-oh, here it comes. Here it comes, something weird. You know, get ready. I can't verify it. I struggle with this because I feel like it's so easy to take our preferences and baptize it with the words, I feel like the Spirit is leading me or I feel like the Lord is leading me. I struggle with it. But there are a bunch of moments like this where the Spirit leads his people over a dozen just in Acts alone. People that love the Scriptures, people that are true to the Word of God, and yet they're waiting on the Lord to tell them left or right. Interesting. Acts, no, this is Acts 16. We haven't gotten to this part in our work of Acts yet, but in Acts 16, verse 6, and it shows, it's talking about Paul going on a mission trip with some other guys, and it says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, pause, what did that look like? They just wake up one morning, and Paul rolls over and says, hey, listen, I know we were going to Asia. I know we got our shots for Asia, packed our bags, Airbnb's ready to go, change of plans. We're not going to Asia anymore. Really? Why? Because the Holy Spirit's forbidding us. I don't want to tell you. The Holy Spirit's forbidding us. And what does that even mean, right? And then it goes on to say, and when they came upon Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. All right, stop, guys. Let's go this way instead. Why? Jesus. He says no. Jesus says no to that way and yes to this way. That's all I'm saying. We're going to go this way. That's what's happening here. I mean, I'm being broad. That's what's happening here. It goes on. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. (laughs) That's crazy. I'm pretty sure they had a good plan before they left the house. I'm pretty sure that they ironed out a a solid strategy, mapped it all out on Google Maps, knew how long it was going to take, had all the stuff they needed, and they're like being rerouted constantly according to what? How they felt things were being communicated supernaturally. I think we have to be settled that this happens. We have to be settled that the Lord guides us supernaturally today. Discernment, visions, dreams, feelings, guidance, direction, nudging, sensing, whatever word. God, now this is the thing, God speaks in finality in everything we need for a life of holiness in the Bible alone. 
The Bible alone, without any, any nudging or sensing of the Spirit, gives us everything we need to live a God-pleasing life, one that we would enjoy. But God is also speaking in kind ways through His Spirit for those who listen, detect, and submit to it. When you read 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans 12, you start hearing about these gifts of wisdom, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, distinguishing of spirits, prophecy, discernment, things like that. All of them require a very deep openness to what the Lord is doing right there in the moment. I've walked into rooms in the past and have just felt a strong magnetic draw to speak to one person and not the next. I've done that. You walk in and you just feel this unmistakable pull to go to one person or two people. Or I've been in conversations with someone and I have felt the subtle guidance to ask a specific question that's going to sound a little cringy at the time. Or maybe like it's out of place, out of context, but I just know that the Lord wants me to ask it. And to great effect, by the way. I've had moments like this. You probably have too. And not to get too far off down this trail, if you have questions about that, of course I could answer them after the service. We've gone through two, no less than two entire sermon series on the Holy Spirit, his giftings, how they operate, how he operates. We've written blogs on it. You can go on our website and just trudge through it all. We've, it's easy to find. But the first is that you believe that God still leads like this today. Quickly, the second, you believe that his plan is better than yours. He's wiser than you. Sure, you had an agenda. I'm sure it was a good one, a good plan. But what we do is we take our plans and we submit them to the Lord, and then we hold them with an open hand because he will often come in and mess them up for his glory and for your good. Third, you have to be open to his guidance no matter the direction. It's not helpful to, this is what I mean, it's not helpful to believe that God does this and that he's wise if we've already determined in our heart that we're not open to it in the first place. If you are unwilling to follow the Spirit's leadership, then what is it that you fear losing? What is it you're afraid that you're going to have to cough up? Because this is where we repent, when we've come face to face with an idol that we prize over God's glory. And this is in the Bible as well. Jonah, Jonah was like this, a reluctant prophet. Jonah knew that God spoke. I mean, he is a prophet, Old Testament prophet he he knew God spoke and he knew that that he was wise he spoke wisdom but he was just simply unwilling to go and when you read the book of Jonah the first chapter moves awfully fast and it sounds a little bit like this God told him to do something and then he goes on Expedia and buys tickets like the very next verse and he's gone right there's not a whole lot he just is determined he is not going to do it and there's a Jonah in every single one of us the part of us that is not open to his guidance. I think this is where a lot of people are today. God has put something on your heart. We call it an impression, a direction, a guidance. Maybe it's with a person. Maybe it's with a family. Maybe with a a gift of some kind. Maybe something. I don't know what it would be. And you've already determined, even if that's God, I'm not willing to do it. Not willing. Risky is the prayer that says, no matter what, Lord, I'm on board. Because you just don't know what's going to come after that. And then the last point is, you have to be watchful for his guidance at that moment. That's what this requires. You have to be watchful. For many, this is not natural. It's a spiritual discipline that has to be practiced. Muscles that have to be stretched. But the more we stretch these muscles, the more easily we sense his leading whenever it matters. After we finish that challenge when I lived in Florida, after that month, because we'd have to do that, and then we'd have to journal about it at the end of the day. 
So you'd have to have two entries at the end of every day. So 62 entries at the end of that month. I caught myself a little bit more practiced. I'd walk into the store to get bananas on the way home or walk through the gym, and I would just catch somebody, and I'd think, Lord, what about that person? What about that person? What can I say? I'm your guy. I'm your guy. I'm open. I don't care if I look like a fool. I don't care if I get punched out. I, don't, I mean, I do, but I don't. You know what I'm saying? But I'm your guy. I'm ready to move. This takes practice. I mean, just try it. My challenge to you, not to do it two times every day for the next month, but once this next week, maybe twice. When you find yourself in a space, an environment, ask, Lord, is there anything you're up to in this place at this moment? Because I'm all in. Send me. What are you up to? And listen, my most adventurous years have been lived in such a way. That's how we planted this church. We started with two families in a living room. So many days of me just walking from Starbucks to Starbucks or the gym or a restaurant or a laundromat or wherever, just creeping around people, just going, all right, I'm here. I'm here to get coffee, but I'm actually here to do more than just get coffee, right? I'm here to get gas, but I'm actually, not primarily, I'm here to do other things too. Lord, what would you have me do. And here's the thing, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not special. I'm not smarter than you. But one thing I do know is this requires a death to productivity because you're not going to get your agenda done when you want to get it done, right? And you're going to feel a little cringy and you'll have a hard time explaining things like this. But the more we stretch these muscles, the faster they twitch. That I do know. It becomes natural to us. Very natural. Here's probably the caveat I would put on this. Even though we're talking about personal evangelism, we're talking about personal entrance into various conversations. When you're sensing the Lord, to use that language for a reason, when you're sensing God leading you into something with gravity, like moving to another city or changing a career or getting married or fostering kids, something big, relocating, things like that, do two things. Bring the word of God to bear upon it, and then bring the community of God to bear upon it. We say it in our covenant, and we believe it, that the Bible is the arbiter, the final arbiter on all things. God will not lead you against the grain of his word that he has already plainly given us. He's not going to call you towards adultery or being financially stingy or into isolation. God will never do this, ever. He will never do it. But also bring the community of God to bear upon those decisions as well because it helps interpret what's foggy. We don't always see clearly. We're full of blind spots. I've been greatly helped by this, and I've been helpful in this. Those are two things that you want to do when it's something that is outside of personal evangelism, right? Something that's a little bit, like I said, it's got gravity to it. But as we kind of segue through the end of this sermon, what have you been sensing from the Lord? What is it? What have you been feeling? It's a still, small voice, but it's a voice. Maybe it's a nagging voice. If the answer's nothing, this could be an area of great practice for you. Just the prayer, the risky prayer of surrender. What are you doing, Lord? Is there anything you're up to in this moment? Anything you're up to in the relationships in my life, in this place, in this time? What are you doing? How can I be a part of that? 
And listen, if you're listening and you're watching online or you're here and you would say that you are far from the Lord, maybe you're curious like the Ethiopian eunuch. You're curious. Listen, Jesus is great at including the excluded. And his spirit is great at nudging and drawing us. And it might even be this moment that you feel him nudging you towards repentance. That's a beautiful place to be, to be directed towards repentance. Maybe you sense that God is inviting you to ditch your will, embrace his will, where, 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 where being satisfied is finally discovered, being content is finally found. The cross is the place that Christ dies, that we're going to celebrate with communion here in a moment. But the cross is also the place where we say, not my will but yours be done. Just like our Lord and very different from Adam. And the cross is the place where we are finally included. Finally included. And I would just submit to you today that you would submit to the Lord today. And for the rest of us, there's going to be a day where the lion who is a lamb and the lamb who is a lion will reign before us. He'll be brilliant and glorious. He'll be tender and ferocious at the same time. He'll be kind and he'll be terrifying. He will be, as Edward says, a conjunction of excellence. And we're going to enjoy eternity every second brighter than the second that just came before it. And we will do so alongside former eunuchs and ex-villains and reluctant prophets and obedient Phillips. It will be beautiful. And we will be included, finally included, finally included. Until then, let's beg God for his quiet voice and let's pray some risky prayers. Let's drop timid adventure and small dreams. Let's drop boredom and live a life of adventure that is found in the posture of Lord, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me.